This is Come Follow Me with David Ridges, brought to you by Cedar Fort Publishing and Media for the week of July 27th through August 2nd, covering Alma chapters 39 through 42. Our special guest teachers today are Matthew Spurrier and Dakota Pierce, authors of How to Be a Powerful Modern Day Missionary and Enjoy Doing It. Well, hello, everyone. My name is Dakota Pierce, and I'm here today with Matthew Spurrier. We are uh, the co-authors of How to Be a Powerful Modern-Day Missionary and Have Fun Doing It. But today we are excited to share with you our thoughts on this week's Come Follow Me. So these chapters are all about the commandments of Alma to his son Corianton. So I'm super grateful for Corianton, to be honest. Um, I think he gets a lot of you know flack in, in, in the scriptures for some of the stuff that you know people think he did wrong. And that can be sort of justified, but I, I'm really grateful because without him, you know, we wouldn't have these these wonderful chapters where Alma teaches us about resurrection and mercy and justice. And um, so um, I, I also think Corianton's one of the most interesting characters in the Book of Mormon and honestly, probably the one who gets the most the most flack, like I said. Um, you know, it talks about <clears throat> how in uh, chapter 39, verse 3, how he goes after this harlot named Isabel. But, you know, it doesn't actually say like he does anything wrong, um, you know, or like, you know, commits any, any, any sins. But we're, we're, you know, besides the fact of just going after her, which is probably a sin in itself. But, uh, you know, I think a lot of people infer that he did a lot of wrong. But and I think he clearly didn't have his priorities in line, but who knows what actually happened. So let's not judge him too far. I think, you know, all of us, and, you know, you know, Corianton, he's he's there. He's going out um, to to preach the gospel with his father, Alma the Younger. So, he, he you know, he was doing the right thing. He just got a little sidetracked. And I think, you know, we've all shirked, you know, some, you know, sacred responsibility, be that preaching the gospel or whatever for some lesser important item, you know, be it a guy or a girl we were interested in, you know, or a board game or video game or house cleaning or, you know, even social media scrolling. So, you know, before we, we point too many fingers here at Corianton, let's first take a look at ourselves and, you know, um, identify with Corianton first. I think that's kind of the first point I want to touch on. I want us to help, I want to help us identify a little bit more with Corianton. I think we are all a bit more like him and, you know, like Laman and Lemuel in the Book of Mormon than we'd like to admit. And I'd like to talk a little bit about his his downfall. Now, I don't want to call it a downfall, but it's a downfall, right? We all have these downfalls where we make poor decisions and we lose sight of what our priorities are. And um, if we look in verse 2 of chapter 39, um, it says that, um, you know, Corianton starts boasting in his strength and his wisdom. And so, you know, Corianton is, is, is not boasting that he's strong and wise. He's boasting that he's stronger and wiser than everyone. So before he even gets to this point of chasing after Isabel, I think this is his initial downfall. You know, this is his initial bad choice is that he starts realizing his own strength compared to others and his own wisdom. And he starts telling people about it. He starts bragging about it. Right. And I love that this is, you know, it's pride, right? This is pride that is, is Corianton's initial downfall. And unfortunately, I think we're all prey to this. And I love how, you know, one of my favorite books of all time is Mere Christianity by C.S. Lewis. And he describes in this book 
pride. He describes pride as pride gets no pleasure out of having something, only out of having more of it than the next man. We say that people are proud of being rich or clever or good looking, but they are not. They are proud of being richer, cleverer, or better looking than others. If everyone else became equally rich or clever or good looking, there would be nothing to be proud about. It is the comparison that makes you proud, the pleasure of being above the rest. Once the element of competition has gone, pride has gone. So, you know, God's plan for us here on earth is not like a race that only a certain amount of people can win. It's not like, you know, in class where only so many A grades can be handed out. Or, you know, a university with only so many open spots for, you know, the most accomplished students. His, you know, God's class is not graded on a curve, right? That's why learning from others, you know, like Corianton, while loving them rather than judging or competing with them is essential to us learning and, you know, becoming like Jesus Christ. Um, so let's learn a little bit more from Corianton instead of judging him too much, okay? So, you know, yes, again, he's boasting, he's, he, he thinks he's stronger, he thinks he's wiser than everyone else. And this pride that he has, you know, leads to this temporal want of this harlot, Isabel. You know, it leaned, I, I'm one of the opinion that perhaps Corianton went to this land with his father Alma, with the right intentions. He went there with this goal to preach the gospel with his father. But, you know, this pride led to, led to a change of his perspective. He lost sight of his goal because of his pride. And this was, you know, it tended him to go over and want women instead of wanting, you know, to preach the gospel. So what's, you know, what's that like for us? Um, you know, I'd like us to focus... Um, more, less on our goals, like, you know, this goal of preaching the gospel, more on what, who we are, our identity. Um, you know, a lot of people focus on changing who they are by defining new goals, right? You want to, you know, go to the gym. So you decide that's your goal. You go to the gym every day, but are you identifying as an athlete? Like, who are you? What, what do you stand by? So, you know, I think who we are becoming and the system, the environment, you know, the habits we're fostering every day to become that person gets overlooked. You know, I'm willing to bet, like I said, that Corianton had this goal to go preach the gospel. I mean, he made this journey with his father, right? It was, it was probably a long journey. And back in the day, it was probably not easy. But I'm sure he lost his focus on who he was becoming and what his identity he felt, identity was. He felt, you know, he fell prey to pride. He started comparing himself. And then because of that, he lost sight of his original goal. And, you know, the, the goal to preach the gospel was easily replaced by, by Isabel. So, you know, how does this happen in our lives? I, I think it might happen every single day. Like there are times every single day where I lose sight of my priorities, where I sin, where I put other things above sacred things. And, you know, I think this doesn't also just have to apply to um, the gospel. I think we can look at this in a, in a, in a temporal light. Um, I think, you know, we can help design our environments and focus on who we're becoming rather than, um, the goal of what we want to do and what we want to accomplish in temporal ways. To give an example, you know, I, I want to, you know, be much healthier, right? So if I drink a lot of, you know, soda, which, you know, people say is not good for me, then I'm not going to be healthy, right? So I want I want to identify with someone who's becoming healthy. I want to eat super healthy. That's my goal. 
But if I can focus on, you know, my system, my process, then I can, you know, become someone who would be a healthy person, right? Become someone that would achieve that goal. So for example, this past week, I just put a water bottle on my desk. And because it was so easy to access that water bottle, um, I started drinking a lot of water and then I didn't drink as much soda. And because of that, um, you know, I was becoming the person that would be healthy, right? I was achieving my goal, but I wasn't focusing on my goal. I was because focusing on my environment, on my on my habits, on my process, on my identity. And because of that, I was becoming someone that would naturally be healthy. So in the gospel, I think the same can be applied. We can focus on, you know, having good talks with God, not so much focusing on, you know, thinking about, oh, do I have a great relationship with God? No, like focusing on daily communication. Every moment counts to be with God, to become one with God. And by, you know, learning to love that relationship, we will, you know, become one with God. And that's where I think we can avoid pride, you know, by being humble and focusing on, you know, the process, not so much the goals. Okay. So, that's that's the first part I want to share. I'll turn the time over to Matt, and then I'll share some ending thoughts here. Awesome. Thank you, Dakota, for those great insights. I'm excited to hear your thoughts later on as well. Um, like Dakota said, my name is Matthew Spurrier, and I am so excited to be with you all here today, um, talking about kind of the second and third section of Come Follow Me this week in um, in the personal study section especially, um, but I'll, I'll really be focusing on Alma chapters 40 and 41. Um, and, and as I was reading Come Follow Me, I just had so many different thoughts come into my mind. Um, and, and specifically, I really like in the Come Follow Me manual, uh, the third part in the personal study section where it says, I can seek answers to my gospel questions in faith. And within that section, it actually says, sometimes we might think the prophets know the answer to every gospel question. Um, but notice that throughout chapter 40, Alma had several unanswered questions about life after death. What did he do to find answers? What did he do when he didn't have answers? I mean, as I was reading this as an overview, it, it really struck my heart again that God uses mortal beings to run his church. And that even the prophets of God are working on becoming better and answering their questions. They're, they're just like us every day trying to understand how to be like the Savior, understand how they can change and, and gain, you know, more answers and seek revelation and learn how the Spirit pox, uh, talks to them. And I think Alma is a perfect example of this. Um, previously, as we know, Alma, Alma was uh, one of the most wicked people on the earth and, and he was a wicked son who persecuted the church. In Earlier on in, in the Book of Mormon, in, in Alma chapter 18, it says, Alma the younger fought against the church. He persuaded many people to leave the church and become wicked. And and as I'm thinking about that, I'm like, wow, what, what a 180 turn from getting people actively to leave the church to being a prophet of God and being one of the greatest missionaries in the Book of Mormon. Um, and, and I wonder if in his day, it, it's kind of like, it, it was like our day. Um, if people said, oh, he can't be a prophet. He made mistakes. Uh, I feel like often there's so much negativity, especially in our world right now, centered on the mistakes of others. I've been, I've been really focusing a lot of my personal study and, and thoughts on, you know, 
how do we view others and kind of that scripture in the Bible where it talks about taking a beam from thy eye before we're judging others. And, and so I think this example of Alma's change of heart and God still using him to lead as a prophet could help us in our days right now. You know, when we think of bishops or state presidents or friends or the prophets and apostles today or in the past, I think it is key to remember that they are human too, that they can repent too, that they are growing too just like you and me, and that God can still inspire them. He can lead and guide his church for the prophets through them or parts of his vineyard. And that, you know, although they might not always be perfect, that that, that doesn't mean the church isn't true, or it doesn't mean that they weren't called of God. It doesn't mean that 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 God can't use mortal people to to do his perfect work although we as people are, are imperfect. Um, and, and one of the, the thoughts I really like around this idea was actually talked about um, by Joseph Smith um, when he, he was talking to a congregation of people um, kind of about this idea of, of trying to, to not judge others. Um, and, and so within the quote, um, I'll read it. It says, um, no man without fault. Although I do wrong, I do not the wrongs that I am charged with doing. The wrongs that I do is through the frailty of human nature, like other men. No man lives without fault. Do you think that even Jesus, if he were here, would be without fault in your eyes? His enemies said all manner of evil against him. They all watched for his iniquity. How easy was it for Jesus to call all the iniquity of the hearts of those whom he was among? I, and I really like the the main sentence here. Um, do you think that even Jesus, if he were here, would be without fault in your eyes? And I think that's important because how often do we look to judge others, um, even though they're, they're just like us? Um, and if Jesus was here today, him being perfect, and we know he was perfect, would we think that he was perfect? Or would we think, and I'm not saying... You know, prophets are perfect or whatever, but I, I just think it's important to keep that in context. Um, and so as we, as, as we look in Alma chapter 40, it actually speaks to this idea very well in verse 20. Um, this is the part of the chapter where Alma is talking about what he thinks um, about the resurrection. Um, and it states, Now, my son, I do not say that their resurrection cometh at the resurrection of Christ, but behold, I give it as my opinion that the souls and the bodies are united of the righteous at the resurrection of Christ and his ascension into heaven. I love, I love this verse. And it, this is the first time it's caught my eye, but I love it um, because he says, I give it as my opinion. Once again, we see God's prophets can have an opinion. They can feel something is right. Um, that is why it's important to distinguish when a prophet of God is speaking as a prophet, like in general conference, when he stakes, you know, he says, I'm speaking for God in this moment, I'm acting as prophet, or when he speaks an opinion that he has about the gospel, uh, about the gospel, um, when he's giving his thoughts and his, you know, his thorough mind, you know, the prophets and apostles or leaders, a lot of times they've really thought through these, so the opinions are going to be great, but, but once again, they're still opinions and, and I think that that's why it can change, but the gospel doesn't change and it's always perfect. And in this scriptural case, Alma seems to be teaching a doctrinal truth about resurrection, but I like that he states that he's given his opinion. Um, and, and like I said, I haven't noticed this before, but I think it ties well into the idea that, 
prophets don't have all the answers. Um, and so that, that's kind of how I wanted to start. I hope as you ponder on that, um, you can think maybe how you should change or, or how we can change or how we can relate to others better, have open conversations and be okay with, with people making mistakes and, and realizing that the purpose of a church isn't to have perfect people that are already there to be perfect, but the church is like a hospital. You know, its purpose is to bring those that are sick that need to repent, um, like myself and like each of us every day to come unto Christ. Um, so let's dive into the chapter as a whole and see how Alma was able to answer his questions um, and see how we might apply these principles into our lives. So in verse 3, it says, There are many mysteries which are kept that no one knoweth um, that, and no one knoweth them save God himself. But I show unto you one. Um, and then he talks and he says that is concerning the resurrection. So Alma explains the idea that there are many things we might not ever know on this earth, but talks about his first question. And that is the resurrection. He wanted to know all about it and what it was. And, and I'm sure, um, I can't imagine, you know, looking forward to the resurrection before Christ had even come that, I mean, the faith that it takes for that is, is next level, I think. But, um, the verses following walk us through Alma's thought process as he investigates the resurrection. The question he has around how many times will there be people rising? What occurs between death and resurrection? Who will go where and what is it dependent on? What does the resurrection really mean? Um, and there's a lot more questions. Um, you know, what will happen to the good people? What are we judged on? And it moves these ideas, these questions into chapter 41. But, um, as you read through these verses, think about your question process. I, you know, we could really dive into the doctrine of the resurrection, but I think pulling it out and understanding how to answer prayers and, and seek answers to God is, is almost more important right now. And, and that's what I was really feeling as I was reading this, especially in kind of this crazy world we're living in. Um, you know, what are you thinking of? Um, as an aspect of the gospel, you know, when you're thinking of questions for the gospel or, or things you want to know, do you think like Alma did and break it down into a bunch of tiny questions that make up your main question? I, I think if we follow this scriptural pattern um, that, that Alma was showing us, it, it also follows the pattern in other parts in the scripture where God teaches us line upon line, precept upon precept. And so I like this idea that Alma in verse three states, you know, my main question is resurrection, but here's all the little pieces. And as you read through this chapter, here's all the little pieces that I, I tried to answer along the way. And I gained them each one at a time. You know, an angel came and spoke to me, or I, I prayed continually, or I did these things. I read the scriptures and, and I gained them piece by piece. And then he was able to step back and said, yes, I've answered my question about the resurrection. Um, and when you break down your big questions into small pieces, I think it makes it feel more answerable, more conquerable. It, it doesn't feel so burdensome as you're saying, you know, do I know the gospel's true? Do I, I, you know, I have all these questions, but maybe you can break down the little things. And then, you know, if you have something that you don't know the answer to, maybe you can find answers to pieces of it that makes you feel comfortable and excited and like you're growing. Um, and so, in chapter 40, you know, we can also see how do we, how did, how did Alma answer his questions? So let's jump back to verse three that we were just reading. And in a portion, it says, which I have inquired diligently of God that I might know. Um, and so we go back to God with our small questions and we pray to know. 
And then we pray again and we pray again and we study it out in our minds. We read talks. We study Come Follow Me like you're doing right now. We ask our friends. We ask family. We can talk to the missionaries. Talk to the bishops, state presidents. You know, listen to general conference. And we gather all of our thoughts. You know, write them down. Get a journal. Put them all out in front of you. You know, towards answering these questions. And then we pray over it. And we say, God, I've done my part. You know, I've thought about it in my mind. And here's what I was thinking. This is what I think the answer is. Is this true? And then God can answer yes, no, or keep searching or direct you to a talk that maybe you've read, but you missed something and and he'll give clarity into what you needed to gain that full answer. Um, And so I think that's important. Follow, follow that, you know, break down your questions and then earnestly study them out. Um, And as a, as kind of a tandem with this, what, you know, the question that's important to ask is what should you do if you feel like you haven't gotten an answer? What if, if you're studying, what, what do you do when, when you feel like God's just not there? Um, and there's a few principles, I think three main ideas I want to speak on. Uh, the first one is remember God's timing, especially in today's, um, kind of instant replies that, that we're used to, you know, fast internet, social media, texting. We as a people have become very, very impatient. Uh, we sometimes expect the Lord to give us immediate answers, but he never promised that. And sometimes it's for our good that, that we wait. Sometimes when the Lord doesn't answer our questions on the spot or within a day or week or month or years, we assume that he isn't going to answer them at all. That, of course, is a big mistake. Uh, God never says, oh, I'm not going to answer. He says, knock and you shall receive, ask and it shall be opened unto you. As long as we continue in our prayers, We have the promise of an answer, but we've never been promised an answer to questions that we don't ask. And we've never been promised an answer immediately. So keep trying. You know, that's step one. Keep trying. Another part of the solution is our listening. You know, our senses, they're constantly, constantly being bombarded with other information. When we kneel in prayer, we feel the floor on our knees or our arms are folded across our chest or it's hot. We're sweating. A truck rambles past our house or someone closes the door loud or our neighbors are yelling or the rain hits the window. The clock ticks really loud in the corner or our mind's just racing. And so I I like to think, you know, no wonder it's difficult to find enough spiritual quiet places to hear things the Lord is trying to tell us. We know it's a small uh, and and whispered voice that that is the spirit, Um, but we can make things even worse by falling uh, by failing to make a real effort um, and, and falling into the trap of, of thinking God's not answering, but maybe we're just not listening well enough. You know, we, we say our prayers really quick, um, even with, you know, sincerity, but then we immediately jump up. I know I fall into this trap all the time, you know, in my nightly prayers. I say my prayer, I jump up, I give my wife a kiss and then go to bed. And, and where was the pondering? You know, or, or we say our morning prayers in the morning and we have these questions we're asking and we, we, you know, essentially it's like calling a friend and we're just talk, 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 and then hang up and God never has a chance to talk. Um, or we run outside and we start talking with our family or we go to work or we're thinking about other things. And so I just think the listening aspect is something that maybe we don't talk about enough. You know, we talk about praying and having the action, but how often do we leave silence for God to reply? And I think it takes practice and patience to learn how to receive spiritual communications in the best of circumstances. Find 
your Zion. You know, maybe it's the temple. I think the temple for a lot of people is is a spiritual place, but maybe it's the woods. Maybe it's, you know, a closet in your house. Maybe it's a long walk down the street and there's a park that people don't go to often or at night there's, you know, it's empty. Um, I really believe that he'll give us answers fairly freely. Um, but if we're not listening or if we're not in tune, we may just not receive it or understand the answer. The result is that we may think the Lord is not listening when the real problem is we're not listening. And one thing that might help this is an exercise. You know, you can pause this and do it now or do it later, write it out and and do this, but take out a piece of paper and write all the things you feel like the Lord has, uh, all the ways or instances when the Lord has answered your questions. You know, what did it sound like? What did it feel like or look like? Where did the answer come from? You know, what should you be looking for in the future? You could spend your whole life on this topic, so don't overthink it. Uh, when it comes, when it's all said and done, remember to just do your best. Go forward with what you think is right and invite you to do good, and then reevaluate as you go. You know, praying always. Sometimes I have found that God lets me make the wrong decision so I know that I'm on the right path later. Um, for example, you know, I, I returned home from my mission in Singapore and Malaysia, and I was just dead set on becoming a doctor. Um, and my whole life I'd wanted to do that and it felt right. And, you know, I think in my infancy or youth, I, I had prayed about it, but who knows how sincerely, but I, I returned and, and without really taking strong consideration, I just said, I'm going to do this. And I think God's okay with it. And I went forward and for three years, I studied all the pre-medical requirements at the university of Utah. And, and I was an anatomy TA and I did research on, monkeys and I, I worked in the hospital and I got all the requirements done that was kind of for applying to med school. I was even studying for the MCAT and one day it just didn't feel right. My wife and I had been praying a lot and it just didn't feel right. And all of a sudden in the next few weeks, I started meeting all these important pieces, people and, and situations in my life that turned me a different direction, flipped me on my head. And in the last year at the U, I completely switched what I wanted to do. And, and I, you know, because I had gone down the road of doing medicine and knew what it would be like and knew the future when I switched, I honestly wasn't worried because I knew what I was leaving and it wouldn't be, it, it wasn't like when I first got into college, I'd look back later and be like, what if, you know, what if I had studied medicine? What if I had tried to do this and that? And what would the outcome be? But I had already walked down that path. And so now when I changed and I had this this revelatory experience for me on, on what I could work in. And, and, you know, I only have the first steps ahead of me, but I feel confident that, that it's the right path and it will direct me the right ways. And that's actually opened up opportunities to work for the church the last year of in, in college for me. And, and I found a great job and excited to move to a new state soon. So I just think sometimes God does let us choose the wrong answer. So we feel better when we're on the right path later. Um, but oftentimes you know, had I prayed earlier, maybe I wouldn't have even needed to take that steps and I, I could have gotten more training for what I'm doing now. So I think there comes a lot of different ways we can receive answers. Um, on a different note, um, hopefully you've been enjoying this so far. I, I, I've really learned a lot this week as, as I was studying, but one of the major topics uh, of this week is the resurrection in general. Um, and in chapter 40, there's kind of seven and there's probably more. So, you know, fact check me, go in and look for more that are talked about in, 
uh, topics about the resurrection in chapter 40, but there's kind of seven main ideas that I got out of it. Um, Number one is there will be a time when the resurrection occurs. Number two, there will be multiple groups within the resurrection depending on different factors. Number three, there is a period of time between death and the resurrection when men and women, evil or good, wait for the reuniting of their body. Uh, Number four, the righteous will be in a state of happiness. Uh, what, what we like to call paradise, which is peaceful and a rest from our sorrows, which honestly sounds amazing sometimes. Um, I know there's been a lot of sorrow in the world right now, so I, I just can imagine how peaceful that will be. Uh, but on the flip side, the evil will have some suffering. Uh, they'll be in a state of captivity, which I like to think of as kind of non-progression. Um, and there will still be suffering where they are, kind of like what we have on earth. Uh, number six, our bodies and spirits will be reunited. And number seven, uh, everything will be restored perfectly. You know, no scars, no um, mal, n- you know, no injuries, no no mistakes, no hurts, um, and and will be in a perfect, happy form. And I, I'm excited about this because I think, you know, coming overcoming the natural man and and this this ungodly world, oftentimes I think that'll take away a lot of suffering in itself. Um, and so that that's kind of an overview of chapter 40. I, I, for me, chapter 40 was a lot less about the revelation in reading the Book of Mormon this time and more about, you know, prophets of God and receiving answers and that process because I liked watching Alma teach his child, um, Coriantum, how he received answers because, you know, our kids in the future, or maybe you have kids now or, you know, maybe you're young and you're listening to this and you can't even fathom having kids, but one day... There will be someone you're teaching that, that you love and that you're trying to help gain answers. And I think he lays out a good a good p- path. How do we do this? How do we help people gain answers? Um, and as we look into chapter 41 now, this is where we get to Judgment Day. Um, this is where is where everything we practice and preach gets added up. And I'm so grateful we have a loving God, a God who knows us perfectly, who will be in charge of that judgment because I know I could never do it. Um, so in verse three, um, he talks about men will be judged according to their works. You know, this is really deciding where we'll go. And and I like the idea that we're judged on our works because it seems fair to me. And I know God is a fair God. Um, in verse six, um, it's, you know, it talks about if we repent, there's hope in Christ. It's never too late to get ready, but we don't know when Christ is coming. So, we will get to go to heaven if we repent. And I think repentance is beautiful and you could talk about it all day, but it highlights in verse six, you know, God says, don't forget, you know, the judgment's coming, but you can repent and I'm always willing to take you in. So no matter where you are in your life, you know, turn to God. Um, Verse eight, this is an important truth that sometimes isn't understood. The decrees of God are unalterable. Um, Whichever kingdom we end up in, which I believe is where we will be the happiest, is where we will be for eternity. So, you know, think about that. Think about your future and and what you need to change today to be ready. Um, And then in verse 14, it all comes back to the great commandment of loving the Lord and loving thy neighbor. Um, And and I really like in verse 14, he says, uh, deal justly, judge righteously, and do good continually. Um, This study was honestly so fascinating. I learned so much. And I was so happy to be here and discussing with each of you. Hopefully you got something out of the thoughts I had. But I will turn it back over to Dakota to finish us off for this lesson. 
thank you for tuning in. Um, you know, reach out to us. We love making friends and, and growing our gospel network and finding peace in Christ together with our brothers and sisters. So have a good rest of your day and have a good week in studying this Come Follow Me lesson. So to close here, I want to talk a little bit about the last chapter uh, from this week's um, reading. This is Alma chapter 42 now. So in this chapter, um, it's all about the relationship between mercy and justice. Um, I think the crux of the chapter is in verse 25 of uh, chapter 42 in Alma, when Alma says to Corianton, his son, he says, What? Do you suppose that mercy can rob justice? I say unto you, Nay, not one whit. If so, God would cease to be God. And I think here we're, we're, we're exploring this idea that you know, justice and mercy, they both need to be satisfied. And one of my favorite uh, stories to, to exemplify this principle is actually taught by um, President Packer before he passed away. And I want to share that with you. So I'm going to read a little bit from that. And I want you to think about um, and, and ponder that, that um, juxtaposition between mercy and justice in your life okay so um this is this is the story it says there was once a man who wanted something very much it seemed more important than anything else in his life in order for him to have this desire he took upon him a great debt he'd been warned about going into that much debt and particularly about his creditor the one who lent the money but it seemed so important for him to have what he wanted right now he was sure he could pay for it later. So he signed the contract. He would pay it off sometime along the way. He didn't worry about it too much because the due date seemed so long away. He had what he wanted now, and that was what seemed important. The creditor was always somewhere in the back of his mind, and he made small payments now and again, thinking somehow that the day of reckoning, the day when he had to repay all the money, would never really come. But as it always does, the day came and the contract fell due. The debt had not been paid fully. His creditor appeared and demanded payment in full. Only then did he realize that his creditor had not only the power to take away everything he owned, but also the power to cast him into prison as well. I cannot pay you, for I have not the power to do so, he finally confessed. Then, said the creditor, we will take your possessions and you shall go to prison. You agreed to that. It was your choice. You signed the contract and now it must be enforced. Can you not extend the time or forgive the debt? The debtor begged. Arrange some way for me to keep what I have and not go to prison. Surely you believe in mercy. Will you not show mercy? The creditor replied, mercy is always so one-sided. It would only serve you if I show mercy to you. It will leave me unpaid. It is justice I demand. Do you believe in justice? I believe in justice when I signed the contract, the debtor said. It was on my side then, for I thought it would protect me. I did not need mercy then, nor think I should need it ever. It is justice that demands that you pay the contract or suffer the penalty, the creditor replied. That is the law. You have agreed to it, and it must be that way. Mercy cannot rob justice. If you do not forgive the debt, there will be no mercy, the debtor pleaded. If I do, there will be no justice, was the reply. Both laws, it seemed, could not be served. They are two eternal ideals that appear to contradict one another. Is there no way for justice to be fully served and mercy also? There is a way. The law of justice can be fully satisfied and mercy can be fully extended, but it takes someone else. And so it happened this time. 
The debtor had a friend. He came to help. He knew the debtor well. He thought him foolish to have gotten himself into such a predicament. Nevertheless, he wanted to help him because he loved him. He stepped between them, faced the creditor, and made this offer. If I, I will pay the debt if you will free the debtor from his contract so that he may keep his possessions and not go to prison. As the creditor was pondering the offer, the mediator added, You demanded justice, though he cannot repay you. I will do so. You, have, you will have been dealt with justly and can ask no more. It would not be just to not agree. And so the creditor agreed. The mediator then turned to the debtor. If I pay your debt, will you accept me as your creditor? Oh, yes, yes, cried the debtor. You save me from prison and show mercy to me. Then said the, then said the one who helps, you will pay the debt to me. I will set the terms. It will not be easy, but it will be possible. I will provide a way. You need not to go. You need not go to prison. And so it was that the creditor was paid in full. He had been justly dealt with. No contract had been broken. The debtor, the debtor in turn, had been extended mercy. Both laws stood fulfilled because there was a mediator. Justice had claimed its full share, and mercy was fully justified, fully satisfied. Excuse me. So, as we're thinking about this, right? This is this role. Like we need to be able to fulfill justice and mercy and the mediator someone else was able to step in and that's jesus christ in our lives um and so i think it's you know up to us so once once you know once the mediator had stepped in and now the the debtor was in debt to the mediator now that's us right what are we in debt to jesus christ for what can we do now to repay jesus christ and I love what Brad Wilcox talks about on this subject. He shares a story in his famous talk called His Grace is Sufficient. If you haven't read it, I highly endorse that talk. But he talks about how he gives a story about a, a girl who came into his office one time, was asking about the atonement. And Brad, Brad Wilcox drew two points on a piece of paper, and he asked the girl to draw a line about how much we do and then a line for how much Jesus Christ does between those two lines. And the girl drew a little line for what we do, and a lo- most of the line was what Jesus Christ did. And um, Brad looked at her and said, wrong. And he said, there, the truth is there is no line. Jesus Christ, in fact, filled the whole space of the paper. He paid our debt in full. He didn't pay it except for a few coins. He paid it all. It is finished. And the girl responded, right, so like, I don't have to do anything? And he said, no, you have plenty to do, but, the, but what you do is not fill that gap. We will all be resurrected. We will all go back to God's presence. What is left is to, what is left for us to do is to determine by our by our obedience what kind of body we plan on being resurrected with, and how comfortable we plan to be in God's presence, and how long we plan to stay there. So that's our job. Our job now in repaying Jesus Christ is to determine by our obedience what kind of body we plan on being resurrected with, and how comfortable we plan in being in God's presence and how long we plan to stay there. So, you know, I, with that in mind, I want to I skip here back to Corianton, right? So in Alma chapter 42, this whole chapter is here because, you know, Corianton is trying to suppose, in verse 1, it says he's trying to suppose that it's unfair for the sinner to be consigned to a state of misery, right? Corianton's backing up the sinner. He's saying, you know, a sinner shouldn't be confined, consigned to a state of misery, like, Maybe he should be given, you know, more of a chance. And I think, you know, not trying to judge Corianton here, like we talked about in the beginning, but we have to exercise righteous judgment. And it's not really the best thing that he's trying to back up the sinner, right? 
And I don't know if Corianton's really in the right mindset, but I think it's very interesting that in the last verse of this chapter, um, Alma, Alma says to Corianton, his son, he says, Oh, my son, you are called of God to preach the word unto this people. So Alma calls um, Corianton, his son, who has these mixed up priorities and maybe not quite in the right mindset, to, to preach the gospel. He gives them a calling, right? Um, and I think, I think, you know, even when people are struggling, we can give them an assignment. It's those assignments. It's that burden um, that can also help us and help us become converted. I love the story that Elder Bednar shares in the April 2014 conference about a truck. A truck, a guy in a truck goes up to gather firewood in the, in the forest and it's snowing and the truck gets stuck in the snow and the guy's trying to get it out and he can't get it out. So finally he just decides, you know what, I'm just going to continue with my day. He goes out, collects the firewood, puts it in the back of the truck. And because there's a burden, because there's a, a large weight in the back of the truck, the truck wheels sink down in the snow. They get friction with the dirt and he's able to get out of the snow. So burdens can actually help us. You know, I think this is a small parable of that, but burdens help us in our lives, right? When we're assigned assignments and callings and given, you know, assignments like today, like I'm supposed to, you know, teach, come follow me for Cedar Fort, right? These are things where I'm able to learn. And this gives me friction that I can come closer to Jesus Christ. Um, so let's not judge Corianton too much. I love that Alma gives him a chance. And then in Alma chapter 49, if we're skipping ahead, right, Corianton takes advantage. He actually preaches the gospel. It's a success story in my eyes. I don't, we don't know all about everything about Corianton, but he actually fulfills that calling. He preaches the gospel. And I think, you know, so don't, don't be afraid to give callings to people that aren't quite there in the right mindset. Those assignments can help them become more like Jesus Christ, more like in that right mindset of, uh, you know, believing and, and being one with our Father in heaven. And I just want to testify here at the end. Uh, and before I do, um, just a reminder. So I'm, I'm, I'm so grateful that I was able to share with you today and Matt. So we're, this is Dakota Pierce and Matthew Spurrier were the authors of How to Be a Powerful Modern Day Missionary. But we're, we're so grateful that we were able to share our thoughts today with you on this week's Come Follow Me. Um, I just want to testify that Christ lives, that, that, that his atonement does fill that gap. Um, he, he allows us to have mercy. He is that mediator for us. He's that mediator for me. I've felt that in my life, that atonement, the grace, the power of God to help me, enable me to overcome things and also redeem me from things I've done wrong. And, you know, things I've broken that cannot be fixed at this point. Um, I testify that as we become like Jesus Christ, we can, uh, you know, apply his mercy in our lives and become more like him. I'm so grateful for him and for his his example to me through the scriptures and in his power and his atonement and his grace that he has so graciously given us. And I say that in the name of Jesus Christ, our Savior. Amen. Thank you for joining us. For more Come Follow Me teaching materials, visit cedarfort.com. Use code CF as in Cedar Fort, podcast, CF podcast, to save 15% off your entire order. 